Gracious God, the text that was just read this morning that we now make our way through shows our need for the Spirit to understand, to believe, to see truth, to hold to it, to be transformed by it. We're reliant on your Spirit. And Lord, we know, we see, even here in the text, the work of the Spirit is in pointing us to Christ. So Father... Would you send the Spirit into our midst to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ the Son that in applying this grace we might be transformed, we might live differently in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, our Gospel Life Church staff met uh, to discuss some of our quarterly goals. So this is the full-time staff uh, works Monday through Friday full-time at GLC, we consistently ask this question as a staff team. This is our habit. What are the works that we should set out to accomplish together in line with our vision and mission each month, each quarter, each semester, right? And that, that affects how we use our weeks. Most of my week is used for study, preparation for the sermon text, time in meeting with people in pastoral care, meetings with leaders, meetings with staff, okay? But in the midst of that work, some of what we desire to accomplish in terms of our large-term goals can, can at times get overlooked. I mean, it's easy organizationally to have stated values that, that aren't becoming embodied. Like, there isn't a church in existence that will have all of their stated values perfectly embodied, right? Not on this side of eternity, but we should be moving in that direction. You know, moving toward our stated values actually becoming embodied, not saying like the vision of Gospel Life Church is meaningfully and relationally engaging skeptics so that we all like hearing about that vision and we all agree with the vision and we all think it's a great vision, but we never ask the questions like, what does it look like to actively reach Skeptics in Crystal, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our uh, workplaces, uh, in the networks in which w- we live. So it's important to set out goals, but you know, when we talk about goal setting, it's important to point out too, there's really no shortage of material on how to achieve your goals in surrounding culture, you know? And so we turn to various places. We turn on YouTube and we find these, these uh, self-help gurus We might go to LinkedIn. I don't know if you've spent any time on LinkedIn. But it's often full of this like, and it's good. It's a good place for networking. You know, it's a tool. But you you can only scroll through so much of it because there's just so much of this like inspirational jargon of how to achieve your wildest dreams, okay? And it sometimes feels like the health and wealth version of social media a little bit. It shows how, how such a huge sticking point in our cultural moment is the question what enables our work? You know, because listen, I'm not trying to throw shade. There is work to be done. Jesus tells us as much. He makes the same point repeatedly. Let us work the works of him who sent me while it is day and night is coming when no one can work. There's gospel to be, be proclaimed. And when we talked through that passage in chapter 11, we talked about how death must not discourage our work. Do you remember? There's work to be done in the Christian life, a calling to share the gospel, and we can't get distracted from that calling, from that good work, from the mission of the church to proclaim the gospel, 
And that's important too because like, I just want to be real clear. There is a mission of the church and not everything is it. You know, and, and sometimes with local churches, something called mission creep can easily set in where we start to drift from our mission, our stated mission, the mission that the scriptures give us, toward good things as being the primary thing, right? And so with these things that are like gospel entailments, they're gospel implications, they're good things because the gospel should lead us to do them, they become our primary things. And this is, it's pretty common for churches to say like, yeah, I mean, we started out as a church that met on Sundays and we we read the word, we explained the word, we were word-centered in that way, we proclaimed gospel, but over time we matured and we realized that the real calling we had was to build that playground for kids in poverty or to start that meal program, and that, that became our primary focus as a church. And it's like, look, those things are great things, and those things are things that the gospel, if it's being believed and understood and applied, it should st- there's a reason why we have a care ministries, a gospel life church that seeks to partner with organizations in those ways, right? But if they become the primary aim of the church, we lose everything. The motives behind them become oftentimes selfish motives and we use them to prop ourselves up. Okay, so it's important to say, like, there is a mission of the church. It's gospel proclamation. We've been called to it. So it's not bad to have an inner desire for work in line with our calling. So it's entirely appropriate to seek out answers to this question related to what enables our work. Uh, the text this morning supplies the answer, and it does so by connecting back to last week's text in a couple of different ways. So first remember, Jesus said we would do greater works than the ones they were doing while Jesus was present with them in their earthly ministry. So in Jesus' ministry, the disciples were doing works with him. Jesus says there are greater works to come. Verse, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So there's this reality of greater works that are in store, Jesus says. Greater works. Because Jesus is going to the Father. It's upon his departure. But that really does prompt the question that now I think he sets out to address. How is that work enabled? And there's a specific reason why disciples around this table will be wondering this that we'll get to in a little bit. You know, how do we accomplish that? It would have been easy, I think, for kind of a reversion to happen in which like the, the, the original hearers of Jesus' words here of work will go back to what they knew in a first century uh, Jewish context. How do we enable work? Well, through the law, you know. And it's easy for us to do the exact same thing today. So we, you know, we have work to do. Do we head to LinkedIn influencers, YouTube motivational self-help gurus? Do we scour the bookshelves at the airports that are full of this self-help material? Like, where do we find the keys for accomplishing the work to which we've been called, the goals that we strive toward? So our text this morning is directly related to last week's text because it sets out Specific, this is the context. Jesus addresses like where his work comes from, like how we do it. And I think you'll see, if you're confused by this, I think you'll see the connection. But secondly, uh, it's related to last week's text because it gives some context to what he said in verses 13 and 14, which we'll talk about a lot this morning. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. You know, so taken out of context, this could be seen 
as implying a sort of health wealth. LinkedIn interpretation, name it and claim it, ask for it and you'll receive it. But in the following set of verses, it's very obvious that that's not the case. This is not what Jesus is saying. You know, we talked about it a little last week at the tail end. We said, ultimately what's happening here is Jesus is telling his disciples how the, go- the gospel actively shapes their desires to come into line with his desires. I think it changes our, our hearts. But here we see that directly tied to this question, what enables our work? And we see that um, in four careful observations of the text. There are four observations we need to note in order to understand how this works. First one in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Four observations. Starting with this, we need to notice four four things. First, notice the motivator in the text. There's a motivator in the text. Desire drives our duty not the other way around. And this is really important. Jesus doesn't say, and I'm not, I don't think this is semantics, I'm not parsing words, okay? He doesn't say, if you follow my commandments, you will love me properly. Although, I think there's a case to be made for that, that we do love Jesus properly when we're keeping his commandments. But he's, this isn't what he's saying in terms of the order of things. And that's important. He also doesn't say, because this wouldn't be true, if you follow my commandments, then I will love you, Right? Um, because we're not able to do that. So he doesn't say that. It's not that he first loved us, that he first captured our hearts for him so that we can love, or it's not that we first loved him, that we first captured uh, his love so that he could love us. It's the opposite way around. It's that he first loved us. John will say that later on. It's important to point out too, this is a conditional, a conditional verse. There's an if involved here. And that's important in the sense that it also doesn't say yeah, don't worry about keeping the commandments. Like, if you truly love him, your life will be shaped differently. And Jesus is going to reiterate this as we go. He'll reiterate it in the text this morning and as we move forward so that this crowd that's out there that, that tries to, to advocate, you know, hey, it doesn't, really, it doesn't matter how you live. It's, it's so much about grace that you just keep on living like the rest of the world. You prayed this prayer you claim the name of Christ. You just keep living however you want to live because His grace abounds. Jesus doesn't leave us room for that. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right? If you claim to love Him, you know, He'll later write in His epistle, which our, our, our men's ministry is studying, our women's ministry is beginning to study. He says, if you claim to love Him but walk in darkness, you don't actually know Him. And so the way that John understands the process working is seen in that epistle in which he repeats Jesus' teaching here. He says, if we claim to love God, if we claim his name, if we claim to live in him, we will walk as he did. But he also says the only reason we can love God, John repeatedly comes back to, the only reason we can love him is because he first loved us, he first sent his son to lay down his life for us, so it's not, the order matters, you know. It's not an in-the-first issue here of us moving toward God. Whether or not we're able to, to work up enough faith and love to move toward Him. If our discipleship starts with us moving toward God, then we're assuming the gospel. 
it's the reality that God first loved you, that he first moved toward you. Otherwise, you never would have been able to love him. He's the first mover. And this is um, ultimately, this is really significant. It's referring to what Jesus means when he tells us, if we ask for something in his name, we'll receive it. He's saying, as we talked about last week, the gospel shapes your loves. This is where it starts. It shapes your loves. It shapes your desires. He's not saying we can somehow manipulate God around our desires. He's saying our desires change. So really, our love for God is actually an imp- what we've called in the past an entailment of gospel or an implication of gospel. Your love, isn't, your love for God isn't what brings about the good news. Your love for God is an entailment of good news. It's God's grace extended to you that you can now love God. It's his, it's his grace extended to you that you can desire him in the first place because he changes our loves. And now we love him. And it's by changing those loves that we can then keep the commandments. Not because, and this is why, you know, noticing the motivator is so powerful in the text. We can keep his commandments not because it's Boy, I'd really like that other thing. I'd really like the other thing. But I gotta white knuckle it and keep the commandments, you know? I gotta white knuckle it to stay away from the thing that I really want, because I guess I gotta follow Jesus. Now listen, there are times in the Christian life in which that's the appropriate response, faithfulness, even when we don't feel like following Jesus. 100%. But growth in the Christian life looks like this. It looks like differently shaped desires. So that we're not saying, oh, I really want the other thing. But over time, it's like, I want Jesus so much more. And it's not that the temptation goes away, right? It's not that on this side of eternity, the flesh continues to work so that maybe we still have the desire for the thing we, that, that, that's not for our good. It's that that desire wanes and wanes and wanes in comparison to Christ and how much we love him and, and how much our heart is growing for him, right? So it's, it just reminds us of the, the old song that I learned growing up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Like even the things that are good things, right? Like the things of the world, from, from the things that tempt us that are sinful, to even good things that we might be tempted to make ultimate things, they grow like gray and almost like flavorless and, and, and um, not nearly as attractive or as bright in comparison to, in light of what we see in Christ. And so this is how the scriptures work. And that's because, listen, keeping his commandments, it's not simply keeping his ethical commands. And this is where, this is where we tend to go off the rails, I think, in um, Christian culture in the past. I'm coming at this as a former youth pastor, you know, youth ministry major at Moody Bible Institute, and then a youth pastor for 10 years here in the Twin Cities. And, you know, like, we've worked really hard in contemporary youth ministry to create very moral kids. And youth ministries in the 80s and 90s especially were seen as being successful in a primary sense if they kept students from violating God's ethical commands. Now, of course, there's wisdom in teaching kids ethics. Uh, Students, I don't want you to go home and be like, Jeremy, this says that the ethical commands don't matter because that's not what I'm saying at all. 
It's important to teach our kids the ethics of Christ and the authority of the scriptures and all of those things. But it has this tendency of being spoken about in that context, and it's had this tendency for a while, of being how we get right with God, how we please Him, how we achieve His favor, how we find ourselves in, on the inside of the Christian culture, the Christian community, the covenant community, is through our obedience staying in line with certain things, these ethical commands, right? But when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he's flipping this on its head in two different ways. Because first, it starts with changed hearts and desires, not starting with duty. We have duty in the Christian life. We do. We have duty to follow Christ. We have a duty to give allegiance to him and authority to his word and to follow those, his commandments, ethical commandments in scripture, for sure, 100%. We do have the duty, but it doesn't start there. It starts with desire. Changed hearts is, is the way this works. A love for the things of the Lord. Like, what does it look like to teach our students a love for the things of the Lord? Not like this is what you're like, stay away from this kind of music. And, uh, okay, so, but a love for the things of God. So he flips it on its head in that way. But second, this phrase, keep my commandments. This is much broader than ethical commandments. It's, it's a phrase that actually encompasses Jesus himself. It, it means receiving Jesus as the entire self-revelation of God. The gospel itself is from within this phrase. And this is important because it might be our habit to, to raise up kids. And, and hear me, parents. It can be easy to raise up children that think they're following Jesus because they do all the right stuff and they avoid all the wrong stuff, you know? They don't listen to the bad music. They're listening to, you know, audio adrenaline because I accidentally called them the newsboys last week. Um, so they're listening to all this, like... So I'm, I'm talking about my, my 80s and 90s youth group experience, right? So it's like they're listening to DC talk and audio adrenaline instead of the bad music. You know, if we can get enough of our kids listening to Sandy Patty instead of these other things. <laughs> they're avoiding all the wrong stuff, listening to all the quote-unquote right stuff. Okay, but meanwhile, they're just wide open to false teachings relating to the person of Jesus. So they end up rejecting the gospel. And I'm, the jury's not out on what I'm describing. I think this is a large reason why so many students are deconstructing their faith and walking away from the gospel wholesale in our time and space. Because they were never taught the transformative grace of Christ, the pleasures of Christ, a love for the things of the Lord. So they end up rejecting the gospel in favor of a post-evangelical progressive Christianity that eventually ends in denying him, denying his exclusivity, his eternal judgment, the things the Bible says that steps out of line with culture. But then they're, they're also, and it's important to note, very kind Moral. They've avoided the self a lot of the self-destructive behaviors. So they think they're good. Why wouldn't I be good? And why, why now do I have to choose between like, why does it feel like the Christian culture that I grew up in isn't cool with this because I was always told to be nice? And... Now listen, you could successfully adhere to many of Jesus' ethical commands while simultaneously rejecting the gospel. His, his self-revelation. Rejecting what he says saves us. Rejecting the very center of the scriptures. Rejecting the scriptures as authority. And therefore you find yourself demonstrating that you don't truly love God according to this verse. Like, this is one of the reasons why 
progressive Christianity, post-evangelicalism. This thing that I refer to a lot that you could go to the GLC blog. I've written a little bit about it if you want to know what it is. But it stands as a flat rejection of this verse because Jesus is calling us to all of himself for every aspect of life. So our mission statement is rooting all of life in the gospel, in all of the gospel, not part of the gospel. The, cur- the curriculum that we use for um, our children, the organization that puts out that curriculum, their, their mission statement is, and I love it, the simplicity of it, but the depth of meaning in it. It's all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. Not some of Christ for some of life. Not all of Christ for some of life. That wouldn't actually be all of Christ. Not some of Christ for all of life. All of him for all of it. Motivated ultimately by the grace of God which changes and shapes our desires to come into line with his desires. Loving the things of the Lord, not just doing them out of drudgery. Do you see the difference? So notice the motivator. Desire drives us It drives our duty, not the other way around. But imagine being the disciples hearing this. And maybe some of your minds are going there, and I'll probably prompt you to do this a lot for the next several weeks, but how can they do it? How how do you get here, you know? Okay, so if, if the first observation here is that desire drives our duty, I think the inclination that we have is to ask the question, okay, how do I get that desire Like, how do I work up enough desire here? What changed that? Because Peter's just been told he won't apparently have much desire for Jesus. He's going to reject Jesus. So how's that going to work? I I want you to imagine being Peter here. The fact that we take this in, you know, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday can kind of disconnect us. Like, this is one conversation, all right, that we need to understand. He's just been told a few minutes ago. He's going to reject Jesus. And he's been told that in front of everybody. So Jesus says, yeah, you think you're going to, you're going to reject me, actually. And then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, you know. You won't deny me, in other words. You won't reject me. So, right? So how? And Peter's like, can I, can I work up the, the desire? Like, can I work up the love? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments? Well, this is where we secondly, so we notice the motivator, but we also have to notice the means. We have to notice the means. The Spirit's the source of our strength, not us. This is good news, like really good news for Peter in this moment. Verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So John and the other apostles are going to write a lot about this. You know, you'll find them echoing the words of Jesus at this point. That mankind was actually shaped by the spirit of the age. We've been given now a spirit of truth. And it's only through God opening our eyes by way of the spirit that we can know him. But it's also echoed in places like 1 Corinthians 2, which I know I return to a lot at GLC. You've heard me read this a lot. But it, it gives us such a helpful vantage point of understanding why gospel, like why the gospel according to the New Testament, you know. So let me read this, and, and, and let me read this in light of what Jesus just read. So I'll try to kind of go back and forth where it's helpful. 
Paul says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Like those who do not know Christ, in other words, like all of us in our sin, apart from his grace and mercy, it's the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And listen to this. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Jesus says, the world cannot receive the Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the primary difference here between those who believe and don't believe isn't that someone worked up enough desire and love and the other didn't, right? The primary, the primary differentiation is the Spirit. It's grace. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And here's the, the kicker, but we have the mind of Christ. The heart of Christ, the mind of Christ. We're being transformed to look more and more like him. So Jesus says here in John 14, the world can't receive the Spirit because it doesn't see him, it doesn't know him. It reminds us of, do you remember our definition of world in John's Gospel? The created world order in active rebellion against its creator. That's how John is using it. It's not a neutral term. It's not a positive term. It is the created world order in active rebellion against its creation. And we see it here. The active rebellion against its creator. And we see it here. Of course, the world that's opposed to the work of the Spirit will not embrace the Spirit because we positioned ourselves as the enemies of God. Right? So it's like... What's the primary sticking point of our surrounding culture with Christianity? It's what's written in the Word. What's the, what's the normative means by which the Spirit of God makes, is, is active among the people of God? It's the Spirit of God working through His Word, you know? So how can a culture that's so uh, against the Word be receiving of the Word? It, it wouldn't make any sense. So it's what we see here. Of course it won't embrace the Spirit. And so what we need isn't, okay, work up enough desire and love. What we need is nothing less than an intervention from the Spirit to show us truth, which is precisely what Jesus promises the disciples here. And this is good news for Peter because it's saying, listen, you won't ever desire God apart from His grace. You won't ever desire God apart from the Spirit's work within you. Like any confession of the whole Christ, any confession of all of Christ for all of life is only possible by way of the Spirit precisely because if we were on our own as natural man, as a result of sin, we would not accept the things of the Spirit. They'd be folly. Foolishness to our ears. Like, we can't even understand them unless the Spirit shows us. And so there's hope extended to Peter because the idea is Jesus is saying, yes, you will fail, you know. Your strength will fail, but I'll ask the Father to send the Spirit to make truth known to you so that you can grow in my likeness, so that you, you will not fail. Because the Spirit is the source of your strength, not you, Peter. If you were the source of your strength, what you will experience in the hours to come would be the normative experience forever. Rejecting Christ, denying Him. But you are not the source of your strength. The Spirit is. The Spirit is. But that leads us, and you know, um, it's important here because 
how do we evaluate this? Like, the, the idea is, if obedience to Christ is an entailment of gospel, then certainly we could say, so is the Spirit's work within us. You know? This is exactly how uh, Jesus presents this idea of Spirit. It's helper, counselor. Look in the text. This term, helper, is used by Jesus a couple of times here in John 14. And its first century usage in Greek was, it was the primary word for legal advocate. So someone who, whether they serve as like a witness in court, like they, they, they give testimony, they testify, or they give guidance. And, and maybe part of the picture here and understanding the way the term is used, again, when, when Jesus is speaking it here, when, when John's recording it, is like, have you ever watched a deposition or have you ever watched a, a Senate hearing or trial where a panel of, whether it's judges or senators or attorneys, they're like grilling the witness and yet the witness doesn't speak on his own does he? Because if, if the witness, witness spoke on his own, he'd get himself into a lot of trouble. He can be trapped in various ways into saying things that are contradictory and then perjuring himself or whatever, right? So what does the witness do? He's not speaking on his own. What does he do? He reclines back, you know, and there's someone who whispers in his ear, and then he comes to the microphone, and he, he, he says, on advice of counsel, right? You know, and, or in the deposition, on advice, like, like, or, or someone goes to the bench on, the, on his behalf, and they test, they give testimony to the truth. This is the function of the spirit in the life of the Christian constantly pointing us to the truth. You know, so the idea here is, again, if obedience to Christ is an entailment of the gospel, rooting all of life in the gospel, all of Christ for all of life, not some of Christ for some of life, then this shows us how ultimately we are to obey the means of our obedience, but also the means of our loves changing and shifting, the source of our strength. So notice the motivator, desires drive duty, not the other way around. Notice the means. The Spirit's the source of our strength, not us. The source of our strength will not be found in ourselves. And, and the evidence for this is in the hours to come. Look, I mean, if, if we honestly still think that Jesus is, is putting forward a gospel of self-reliance, then the, then the disciples should do just fine. Then Peter should be just fine in the hours to come. Right? Like, no failures. But that's not what happens. Okay, so the source of their strength, another way of putting this is, and I should have put this up here, so I'll say it a couple of times so you could write it down if you're taking notes. Another way of saying this would be something like, the source of their strength, and really, so the source of our strength as Christians is received, it's not arrived at. It's received by grace, it's not arrived at by work. And this is important because I think we tend to perceive uh, the source of our strength is being something that, like, we have to work up enough faith, we have to work up enough strength, we have to work up enough love. And, you know, so, so then the idea of the gospel would be, like, processing what Jesus says is true on my own and then coming to a conclusion and then arriving at a different desire. But, but this kind of desire shift doesn't happen with me arriving at it. It happens by grace. It's received by the Lord. It's, it's His work. It's not mine. It doesn't mean that I'm not responsible for the way that I respond, but it's such a 
picture of his grace for us, okay? So this is, a, okay, the disciples are, are, they're still in the upper room until the Spirit comes upon them. The resurrection certainly emboldens them. Jesus teaches them in his Spirit, but until the Spirit comes upon them and allows them to see and understand and believe what's true, give testimony to it themselves, they have no real sustained success in following him because they couldn't. The Spirit is the source of their strength, not them. And, and, and this is also important because how we evaluate the work of the Spirit matters. Anytime I get a chance to talk about this in the text, I try to because I think it can lead to a lot of confusion. And even as new people come into the life of Gospel Life Church, I have these kinds of conversations where people will say, you know, oh, we, we love different churches, but the hope that we have is for more of the Spirit, right? And, and I say yes and amen, 100%, more of the Spirit. But the way that we often evaluate the Spirit in the life of the local church is like through this miraculous stuff that's going on. And it really reminds me of the way that first century Jewish audience was evaluating Jesus, whether or not he's the Messiah. Like they wanted all the miraculous things. They wanted all the stuff. They wanted the signs. They were in love with those kinds of things. And here, here he's saying, like, I've come to give you my self-disclosure as to how you can be made right with God. And when we approach the Spirit, we can also, like, well, the primary way the Spirit shows himself in the life of the church must be through these miraculous... After all, Jesus says, greater works than these will you will see. So he must have been talking about, like, tongues and healings and all of these different manifestations of the Spirit that are just so obviously miraculous, you know, and then we evaluate the Spirit in that way. And it, look, I believe that there's absolutely... Uh, a role that the Spirit plays in those ways. There's gifts of the Spirit that manifest itself in the life of the church today. But do you know the normative way that you can see the Spirit at work among the people of God? Christ being, Christ crucified, proclaimed, proclaimed, understood, applied to all of life, 100%. This is how the Spirit works in a normative kind of way. He makes himself known to God's people through his word, showing them Christ. And we say, well, that's not very miraculous. It's the most miraculous thing possible. We couldn't know him apart from this revelation. And here we have the Spirit showing us the truth. Right? So, but that leads us to a third careful observation because really it leads us to ask the question of, well, what's the message then? What's the message? Like, if the motivator is the desire drives duty, not the other way around, the means is the Spirit. Well, what is, like... The message that the Spirit is, is giving testimony to in the first place, and it's that hope helps our hearts, not right circumstances, starting in verse 18. And um, if you have a hard time, if you're someone who has struggled in the past when Christians have used words like good news, because you've come to the text and you've said, where is there good news here to be found? Read good news here. Now, I want to encourage you to, to really like Open your eyes to some good news. Listen to these words. I, just Jesus talking to the disciples hours before his crucifixion. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever 
has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, and I have to imagine not Iscariot, Judas is very happy every time John inserts this. <laughs> Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So in this text, you see a lot of repetition of the first two points, right? But what's interesting here is that the disciples aren't told that their circumstances are what needs to change in order for them to respond faithfully in the hours to come. Like they're headed into hours of trouble and confusion ahead, as we talked about last week and we'll continue to talk about. And Jesus isn't saying, listen, look, you know, maybe I shouldn't go to the cross because those circumstances would be pretty tough. And if the circumstances are better, your response would be better. If the idea is true that if your circumstances were better, your response would be better, well, we have a whole Old Testament that proves that to be untrue, actually. We have a whole experiment in the Old Testament to see whether or not that could actually happen, and yet we see the cycle of sin and servitude in which uh, the Lord's people are brought by grace out of their servitude, and things are made right again, and they're restored again to God, and they have this opportunity to just make the right reforms, to usher in God's kingdom, but they fail again, and back out into exile, servitude, they go, okay, it's impossible. The message Jesus gives them isn't that he's come to change their circumstances so that they won't suffer, but rather it's in the midst of suffering because we will suffer. Even suffering in his name, they can be faithful. Why? Because of a future hope. Though we struggle, he will not leave us as orphans. Though we still suffer on this side of eternity, he will come to us. Though our hearts are troubled, we will see him again. Hope helps our hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, by the way, will help you process a lot of that, unpacks a lot of this, how hope helps our hearts, hope of Christ, the hope of Christ. Though our hearts are troubled, we will see him again. And even throughout that suffering, he is in us, in union with us, testifying to the reality that we have this hope. So Jesus says, listen, the world is hopeless. It does not and will not hold out a hope that can satisfy your heart. Suffering comes for everyone, death comes for everyone, and in the midst of that suffering, facing death that sin brought about, our natural response will always, always, always be to reject God in the midst of that suffering, to curse God and die, the created order and act of rebellion against the good king who created them, setting ourselves against him as enemies. That's our natural response, that's natural man, right? But listen, uh, God holds out hope in Jesus in two ways in this text. These rebels, they can be not only offered forgiveness, that itself would be miraculous, but they can be brought into his home as sons and daughters. You know, not simply set free from a depraved orphanage and left to figure it out on their own, not left as orphans, but offered a kind of forgiveness in which they're actively brought in 
to God's household. You know, like if anyone loves me, change desires, brought about by the Spirit, he will keep my word. Again, this, the full self-disclosure of Jesus Christ and all the entailments for all of life. And my Father will love him and, and we will come to him and make our home with him. There's hope held out to rebels. And this, the hope being held out uh, is a, a hope the world doesn't offer. Hopeless rebels to find a home with Christ. But second, his coming will not just be limited to his life with, within us. He will physically one day return to make all things right. I think, so I think there's two things happening here. Because the question is, when Jesus is talking about coming for them, not leaving them as orphans, but coming for them, what is he talking about? Is he talking about what's going to happen after the resurrection, when his spirit comes and uh, confirms uh, his union with them, his life with them? Or is he talking about uh, future resurrected glory? And I think in its initial sense, he is talking about the fact that he will have life with us now, you know, that he will not leave his disciples after this, that though he departs and though they're on earth, he will be present with them, okay? He will, he'll be in union with them. I do think that's what he's talking about, but I don't think that's all John's talking about because he uses these, these words, you know, um, in, verse 20, in that day you will know. That phrase, in that day, is a loaded New Testament term that, comes chock full of all kinds of like future, resurrected, glory kind of language for God's people. So I do think there's that happening too. And that changes everything. This kind of future hope for the believer, the present hope that we have now in Christ, the future hope for the believer changes everything. It's interesting because we definitely lean toward grass's greener thinking when we're approaching a problem as believers or just as people, just as people. We have a grass is greener thinking in which here, here's our focus. Like if I'm dealing with real difficulties, and many of us are, we start to think that a change of location in, in any sense, a change of circumstance in some sense will make everything right in terms of how I love and, and how I think and how I behave and all these things. You know, like the grass is greener. And that, all, that, that way of thinking always fails us. And the reason is because, as it turns out, you can't just transform your life simply by believing anything related to your future because those things as a primary hope will always leave you wanting. They'll never be enough to satisfy. And yet Jesus expresses, okay, so it's not your circumstances that make you feel the way you feel, behave the way you behave, but actually the hope of your heart, what you believe about your future, it actively shapes your present life, and what the gospel holds out actually does satisfy because it holds out nothing less than Jesus himself, the one who's able to do for you what you're unable to do, what you keep striving for, but you can't reach, seem to reach it. The one who holds the burden of accomplishing the very thing you can't accomplish and who brings you into his household, you know. What Peter and the disciples need here is not vague generalities, inspirational jargon, or a change of circumstances, but the kind of hope in the midst of those circumstances that can ultimately satisfy. So many of us are wrestling with circumstances, and we think maybe the answer is, and I think Satan uses this as a way to derail us, to derail our lives as Christians, to derail our ability to build into and invest in the life of a local church, to derail our marriages. Satan comes along and tries to make us think, well, if I could just change my circumstances, I could just walk out and do something different. 
No, Jesus offers a kind of hope in the midst of any circumstance that ultimately satisfies hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. And that has real ramifications because notice now finally the movement. The gospel gives growth, not the world. And we'll focus a little bit more on this text into next week. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. There's the passage that Lloyd-Jones unpacked in the reading from two weeks ago that I encourage you to keep reading. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Listen, the primary work of the Spirit here is a work of gospel remembrance in the life of the Christian. The helper, the counselor, the Spirit will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that Jesus has said in the gospel. And what's the result of gospel remembrance? Peace, shalom. And that word, it doesn't just mean a cessation to violence. It doesn't, it's not just referring to some kind of inner calmness or state of mind. This is like a totally transformative peace, a peace that finds itself working itself out in all of life. Shalom. So the gospel is given, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, taking the punishment of rebels so that by dying the death that the rebels deserve, those, those rebels might no longer be rebels, but sons and daughters brought into God's home, his kingdom, his family. That gospel is made known to us by the Spirit. Without that, we wouldn't ever know God. Brought to mind again and again, our courtroom advocate who, who speaks the truth into our ears you know, we don't speak on our own because the Spirit testifies to the Son. He's in the courtroom giving testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. And that results in a deep-seated transformative peace in the life of the believer. And, and the reality that Jesus goes to be with his Father is actually very much for our good because Jesus goes to be seated at the right hand of God. The idea of verse 28 isn't that the Father is greater in some ontological sense in which we conclude that Jesus is some lesser created being. But as the vast majority of commentators know, listen, Jesus here is declaring to his disciples and he's declaring to us this morning, he's returning to where he belongs, the glory he had with the Father before the world began, the place where the Father is undiminished in glory, seated in power at his right hand, and, and we need him there, right, in this life. It's better for us that he be seated in power at the Father's right hand and that we'd be able to, by his Spirit, be in union with him. The reason he's told us all of this, according to the text, is that we might believe. John's shepherding his readers. That they, might, that they might change their desires? No, that they might believe. That they might, by faith, throw themselves on the mercies of God and therefore have new desires by the Spirit's strength that worked in them. A hope held, held out to them that really does transform everything and a gospel that, that gives growth in real and powerful ways. And so we repeat this gospel to one another every week at the table. I'm going to invite you forward. Before we have our meal downstairs together, we're going to have this meal together at the Lord's table in which we're going to proclaim this very transformative gospel to one another's hearts. If you're a believer, come forward. Take these elements back to your chairs. If you're not a believer, believe today. Throw yourselves on God's mercies at the cross.